So I'm reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you they are eternal. Father, I pray for everyone here in this room that we will hear something of, of you, of your word, and take it with us today and throughout the rest of the week. Father, I thank you for Andy, and I just pray that blessing will be upon him. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. We live in an age of incredible displacement uh, of people around our world. Um, we have a huge kind of immigration challenges across the continents. Uh, it's currently right across pretty well all of the news platforms uh, that we read about. Um, you know, whether it's the, the, the kind of the Trump debacle um, with the, the Mexican border and kids being separated from, from parents, uh, whether it's been the Windrush scandal uh, recently, uh, whether it's uh, just Brexit and the UK immigration policy and trying to come to grips with, with all of that. And uh, the UN uh, refugee uh, st statistics uh, show that at the end of 2017, there was over 68 million um, individuals uh, kind of been forcibly displaced uh, across our world, um, either as a result of persecution or conflict or violence uh, or some other human rights violations. I think it's 25 million are refugees, uh, 40 million have been internally displaced uh, in countries, uh, 3 million asylum seekers. Um, it's actually one in every 110 people on our planet. 
It's a, it's a significant uh, situation that the nations face. Central African Republic, I was reading, one million people seeking refuge in either a mosque or in a church uh, because of the uh, things going on there. Central America, um, people coming up because of the, the, the drug cartels, the violence, people fleeing their homes um, and then finding themselves uh, on, the, on the US border. Uh, Europe, struggling with refugees from Syria and Iraq um, and from North Africa and all of the, the challenges of the Mediterranean at the moment. The Rohingyas, uh, people in the Ukraine, people in uh, Yemen, uh, the list goes on. I think over three million kids are refugees that have got no school to go to uh, currently. So these are really challenging times for the displaced people of our world and the really challenging times for the nations and the governments um, as we seek to find, find a way through. And therefore it's a really interesting passage that we read today uh, in the light uh, of all of that as we look at this parable of the sheep and the goats. And it's, it's not really a paradox. You're not supposed to be a sheep and a goat. Um, the paradox is, in fact, it may be that you're not meant to be either. We'll come to that controversial point later on. But um, it, there are paradoxes in there. God's judgment and God's mercy. Um, the paradox of you serve this person, you end up serving Jesus himself. So there's lots of things uh, in there. It's actually, I think, by introduction, quite a tricky passage to really understand. Um, and so I'm gonna do my best today with God's wisdom, but let's not come to it with our preconceptions of what we think it means. And uh, maybe we'll get something fresh uh, from it this morning. So first I want to look at the context of the whole of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is generally split into five large sermons of Jesus. Um, and uh, they all end with this phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things. Most of us, um, if you've been a Christian a while particularly, would be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that big sermon of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, he then goes on in chapter 10 and he's his great mission sermon uh, where he sends out the 12 uh, to the villages and to the towns uh, round about. Chapter 13, we have the parables of, of the kingdom, what it means to be a kingdom worker and the mysterious way in which the kingdom grows. In chapter 18, we have this thing of who's the greatest and Jesus says the least of you, etc., and how to live the Christian life as a family, as a community. And then we get this sort of kind of towards the end of time uh, passage from the Mount of Olives, generally taken as 24 and 25, although you can include chapter 23 in that as well. And as one commentator says, it shows the destiny of this kingdom of its citizens is to be scattered around the world by its enemies so that it can tell everyone everywhere um, about Jesus. And so the parable of the sheep and the goats is found in this last section, right at the end at the, of this final speech. And it actually concludes there. So it's at the very end of that part. And uh, the sermon began out of some questions the disciples have because Jesus said that the temple's gonna be destroyed um, in, in the future. And so they start to ask, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus says, he doesn't know. He has no idea, verse 36, about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. And he says, because no one knows, then we should be alert. Okay, we're to be always expecting and always ready for his return because it will, we will never know when it quite is. And all of the parables talk about it being longer than a lot of people expected 
to do that. So um, again, in chapter 24, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me, says Jesus. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith. They will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations, and then the end will come. And so we're to stand firm in Matthew 24. We're to keep watch, we're to be ready, and we're to be on the alert. And so the question is, what does that look like? What does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to be alert? And uh, that is then unpacked in chapter, at the end of 24 and 25 with these four parables, um, which are all basically saying it is to wait and be alert is not a passive thing, but it is an active thing in that we are actively seen to be living out our faith day by day. That is the way to be ready. So for example, there's the faithful and wise servant, um, which is, uh, the emphasis is on do what you're supposed to be doing. So when the master comes back, are you found doing what you're supposed to be doing or have you given up and you're just slacking somewhere? Okay, and he says the faithful and wise servant is still doing what he was supposed to be doing. Um, then there's the parable of the 10 virgins or the 10 bridesmaids with the lamps, with the oil, and the wise ones are the ones who can keep their lamps burning. So do we keep our lights burning, keep our light shining in our lives? Is our faith real? And then there's the, the parable of the bags of gold or the talents uh, where the, the one guy buries it in the ground, does nothing, and the rest invest it uh, in the kingdom so that when the master returns, they've been good and faithful in investing it. You know, are we using what God gives us to invest in people, to grow his kingdom because there are rewards for doing so and there are consequences for not doing so, whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our gifts. Are we investing them? And then the fourth parable is this one, the sheep and the goats, the closing parable. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so if you take the Sermon of the Mount as a, uh, a kind of sermon on the blessings of true discipleship, then in a sense this one could be the curses of false discipleship. When we, when we don't uh, do the things, when there's, uh, I think in each one of these parables there's a finding out. People are found out for not doing something as opposed to doing something. But there's also huge blessing in it because he says to those on his right, come you who are blessed, by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The gospel's been preached to everyone and people have responded to the grace of God. They've responded to what Jesus has done for them. This is a gospel of grace, uh, very much so. But he then goes on and Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer, when Lord? You know, when Lord? I'm sure I would have recognized that face. Yeah, I'm sure I would have remembered you. And uh, the king's reply is, well, whatever you did for the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. So the first thing I want to look at is who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine? 
Because different people argue different things. Some people argue that it's everyone. Any poor or any marginalized in the world, that's who that is. Some argue that it is just the end time messianic Jews who come to faith uh, at the end. But I think that the truer to this passage and to the Matthew's gospel as a whole is that these brothers and sisters of mine are exactly that. They are Jesus's brothers and sisters. They are Christians in the world. Followers of Jesus here and across the nations uh, of our planet. There are other passages in the Bible, like the Good Samaritan, that say that we're to minister to all and everyone. But this passage, I don't think, is about that. Matthew never refers to Jesus, um, sorry, Matthew never has Jesus refer to his brothers and sisters other than those who do the will of the Father. So when Jesus is asked, who are my brothers and sisters, in uh, Matthew 12, he replies, he points to the disciples, and he says, these are my brothers and sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In Matthew 28, he says, go and tell the brothers to go to Galilee. And in this parable, he says, the brothers and sisters of mine. That might be controversial, but stick with me on this one. Okay, the second is this identification with Jesus. You know, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 40, when he speaks to the disciples, he says, whoever welcomes you when you go into a town or village welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Okay, he sends out his disciples earlier in chapter 10, and he says, take nothing. Okay, go with no provision, but rely on the hospitality of the, the towns and the villages and of the people that you come to. And the manner in which those disciples are received, the manner in which they are welcomed in a hospitality sense, um, it determines whether God will bless that town or whether they will, um, they will be cursed, if you like. They will be outside of God's blessing uh, because of it. How they receive him. Uh, chapter 10, verse 42, he refers to his disciples as these little ones, the least. Um, Matthew 18 also, if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, one of my disciples, then he's not just giving them a cup, but he's giving him a cup. He's not just blessing you, he's blessing me. So Matthew's gospel as a whole clearly links the least of these brothers or sisters of mine with followers of Jesus. When Jesus um, appears to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. What was, Paul, what was Saul doing? He was dragging Christians, followers of Jesus, men and women, into prison and having them killed. And he's been accused of persecuting Jesus himself. Okay? He persecuted Christians and in the so doing persecuted Jesus. To oppose God's people, to oppose the Christian church is to oppose God himself. And on the other hand, to minister and support such is to minister and bless Jesus himself. So the same principle as here in the sheep and the goats. So to be alert, to stand firm, to be ready for the master's return is to be doing what we're supposed to be doing and continuing despite the length of time it may take for him to return. 
you know, feeding his servants, looking after his household. You know, it is so important that we, we bless one another and that we support the household of God. We're to keep our light shining in that second parable. We're to invest our gold and all that we've been entrusted with and we're to serve the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. Um, John puts it in 1 John 4 verse 20, he says, if anyone says I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, then he's a liar because anyone who doesn't love his brother or sister who he has seen cannot claim he loves God who he has not seen. But we must also love our brothers as well. So genuine Christians will express that love. False Christians perhaps won't. Pay lip service to God, but there's not the reality of that love uh, and that self-giving love uh, in our lives. One commentator notes this about it. He says that the deeds of hospitality are not the root of their salvation, but the fruit of their salvation. Okay, so it's not the deeds that make you a Christian, but the fruit of being a Christian is you will produce that fruit. The genuine salvation results in genuine fruit and good works. The third thing I wanna say about this, which is the challenging point, is that Western Christians read it wrongly. Okay, as Western Christians, you know, we sometimes forget that we're in the top kind of 1% of the world's rich list, right? And therefore we read this with completely different eyes uh, to others because we see ourselves as the sheep straight away. We see ourselves as the powerful people who can help the powerless people. Um, but the New Testament disciples, that wasn't the case. It was totally different. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he says, go with nothing. Don't take a purse, okay? Don't, don't take a bag, okay? Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person and stay with them. Luke puts it like this, he says, find the person of peace. Find the place, the people that will be hospitable to you. And if they receive you as the gospel messenger, then they will receive the gospel message. And so use it as a way to find out where people are open. Um, he said this in just a few verses later. He says, expect to face arrest and prison. You'll be put on trial before governors. Um, Paul uh, writes uh, about his fellow worker, Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter two, um, who was sent to take care of Paul's needs. And he says of him, he says, but he himself was ill and almost died. He almost died for the work of Christ. Galatians 4, he says, he says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I had that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself. That same principle. Romans chapter eight. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Okay, no clothes. 1 Corinthians four verse 11. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated. We are homeless. The disciples on mission were the hungry and the thirsty, and the naked, and the prisoners, and the sick, and the strangers as they turned up 
at these villages. And um, this is a huge challenge to us. It's a massive challenge to us. Someone said this, true messengers of the gospel will successfully evangelize the world only if they can embrace poverty and suffering in Christ's name. That is tremendously challenging to us. Um, and that's what the Chinese house church are doing. Um, incredible stories. And um, they have a plan called uh, Back to Jerusalem, um, which is basically taking the gospel, which obviously came originally from the kind of the Holy Land and through Jesus and the disciples out to China, and then are trying to take it back through all of the really hard to reach countries all the way through Central Asia across the trade routes um, that exist. So back in 2000, they set out to do this. This was their vision. They wanted to send 100,000 missionaries um, across the trade routes across Central Asia, the most difficult to reach lands, um, the, most, the places where Christians are most heavily persecuted to do that. So they, they got a, a number of leaders together and they, were, they, were, they had to test, be pretty tough guys uh, and gals to do this. So there were people who had led a congregation uh, for at least 10 years and had endured a significant amount of hardship um, as well. So many of them had been in prison to do that. They'd been fruitful in their ministries and they sent out 39 kind of gospel warriors in 2000. Okay. In a few days, 36 of them had been arrested because of the countries they'd gone into. And the Chinese church were not um, disillusioned by that, absolutely not. But they were holding hands up in, and praying in tears, thanking God that they managed to get three missionaries out of China. That's the mentality that they have. Um, that is hugely challenging. And we live in a day where there are brutal realities of the persecuted church that we've seen, especially through kind of Iraq and Syria uh, recently and uh, parts of uh, kind of northern Nigeria. Um, you know, we live at a time when we've become more aware of the costs um, of Christian believers around the world in holding steadfast witness to their faith. And, and so we can pray for them. Um, you know, we can let them know um, uh, through the ministries that exist, whether it be Open Doors, whether it be Release International, uh, others uh, as well, um, these guys from China. You know, we can support them, we can advocate for them. Perhaps we can write letters of encouragement to let the persecuted church know there's, there's others, brothers and sisters that care and praying for them. But there's also the challenge to ourselves. Are we willing to embrace the challenges of poverty and suffering in our own lives for the sake of mission? You know, very often those difficulties are things we, we just put to the side um, because we don't want to go there. Or at least embrace the cost of what it means to be a Christian, living out a Christian life in our culture. Um, because it is a different world, it is a different challenge, it has different costs very often to that. But the stakes involved are eternal for people. And the call of God is for us to be light to our communities and light to our nations. It's great we're out in Bourneville next Saturday. We had a great time in Mosa yesterday, just encouraging people to, to, to try praying and different things, some great stories from that. But the other thing about this is it, it, it suggests a different model for mission, that we are not going as strong people with resources to help the weak, but we go as the weak, ready to receive from those to whom we've been sent. Because 
as we go in that way, if people receive us, then they start, as we learn here, they receive not only us, but they receive Jesus. They're open to the messenger, they become open to the message as well. So we can apply this in both ways. We can be the least of these brothers and sisters of mine who receive from others, who receive from one another, but also we can be the sheep. We can be the sheep or the goats, your choice, um, because of the stranger. And I wanna just draw out this fourth point about the stranger. Because there is an element of surprise in these people in this story. They, when Jesus says to them, um, you did it for me, they, they say, when? When, Lord? We didn't realize we were doing it for you. Um, so there's this element of surprise in there. And if it was everyone in the world, that wouldn't be a surprise. If it was just those in the church, it wouldn't be a surprise. But it's as though Jesus comes incognito and the sheep entertain him completely unawares. You know, we don't know the ones in whom Jesus will come to us. And uh, while it's true Jesus' presence is always gonna be more prevalent in one sense within the body of the church and within other believers and we're to serve and support one another, um, he also exists unknown in persons beyond it. You know, his spirit moves in unrecognized ways beyond the realm of the church, gathering people in the strangers. And so Jesus can come to us as the unrecognized stranger, as the illegal immigrant, as the foreigner, as the vulnerable child, as the prisoner, as the despised minority, or even as our enemy. How do we welcome a king like that is a big challenge. Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, fellow believers, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. So although the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, I believe, refers to followers of Jesus, we never actually know who they might be, because they will be strangers to us. There will be those that we don't recognize. And so it's like the boss of the company who takes off his, his posh suit and he puts on the, the clothes of the shop floor worker and just starts working alongside them one day and they don't realize. And he's just trying to find out what are they really like? What do they think about him? How do they really treat one another in all of that? It's the, it's the incognito hospitality test you know, we saw it with Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. You know, the disciples are walking along with this stranger. They don't know who he is, chatting away to him. And it's only when they offer him hospitality, come back to our home, and it's then that his identity is revealed to them. You know, we were recently trained uh, at work on first aid in the workplace, which is great. You know, you do CPR, you do your defibrillators, you get everything these days, you know choking, seizures, and all the rest of it. But what's interesting is when you've been trained on that, you're obliged to use it, okay? You're obliged to use it. Now, hopefully you think, yeah, you would. But I mean, some of the stuff's, you know, it's fairly new to you, that's a bit scary, you know, trusting someone's life to you. We're obliged to use it. But so it is in the Christian life. You know, we, we have an obligation. We have a duty of care to one another. And we have a duty of care to the stranger. 
So as we look at our world today, we look at the immigration challenges uh, that there are right across the UK, across Europe, the Trump wall, whatever you might look at, the nations of the world are being exposed to the great test of hospitality, the great divine test of hospitality, potentially a test of end times consequence, who knows, okay? And, and here at Riverside, it's, you know, it's been wonderful to see some of the things that have happened. You know, we've had people from all parts of the world, we've had asylum seekers and, you know, engage with us. They've come to faith in the UK, they've sought asylum. Um, you know, there's, there's at least four people I can think of where I've stood in a court for them, trying to advocate for them. Um, a guy from Afghanistan, a guy from Libya, a guy from uh, Eritrea that the, um, uh, the, the Word of Hands guys uh, knew, uh, Iranian. Just standing with people who are persecuted in their own country or would be persecuted in their own country and uh, supporting them in that. Christian believers, people that God is at work in, strangers to us. But does this parable speak prophetically into our lives? You know, do we extend that hospitality ourselves as individuals? And does it speak prophetically into the nations and the governments at our time? Because God uses the hospitality test to determine true believers from false believers and the hypocritical. They say this about God, but they do that. And uh, so in conclusion, really, two things. One is, is this God's hospitality test. Where are you? You know, what, what does it look like in your life across this congregation? You know, do you extend it to the stranger who turns up? And uh, do we extend it to the minorities across our communities and across our city? And then the second is this suggestion of a different model of mission. You know, are we willing to embrace the challenge of, of suffering at times in our lives or even poverty for our faith uh, where we become dependent on others and, and we're the least in this story. Um, we're the least of his brothers and sisters. Let's pray, maybe the bands could come up. Father, as we come before this, these words this morning, we ask simply that you would speak to us through these words. Lord, in the whole area of hospitality, Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts and lives. In the whole area of mission, Lord, speak into our hearts and lives. And even just for this moment, Lord, we just bring our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world before you once again. For those who need your provision today, who need your deliverance today, who need your encouragement today. We pray for those fleeing with family across seas and uh, uh, on crowded boats, not fit for purpose. We pray for those trapped and separated in detention centers. And Lord, we pray, may the nations respond with wisdom and a true fear of you in our days. In Jesus' name.